Data is something that annoys the bejeevers out of me. And I think one of the first rules when understanding value is price does not always equal value at all. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is a data doozy. Yes, we're going to dig into real estate data. Which of it should we actually give a rat's ass about and which of it is just poppycock? We're going to do what I'm referring to as the Big Coaster Guide to owning or buying real estate. Yes, we're going to put it on the back of a beer coaster. We're going to simplify it down so that we mere mortals who are playing in the real estate market can actually make sense of what is going on out there. What should we care about? What is just baloney? I'm going to give you my thoughts on macro and micro data. Yes, are you ready to come on a macro and micro journey with me. If you are, you're tuning in to the right podcast today. Welcome aboard if it's your first time tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. We love tackling podcasts quick here, so make sure you double speed play me. Put your foot down, I say, and give yourself some life back. You can knock this podcast over in about 25 minutes if you double speed me. I don't sound like a chimp monk, so get into it, crack on. There are better things to do than certainly listen to me, but I do think by the end of this podcast, you're going to work walk away with uh, sort of like the what, the when, the why, the how, and the where of understanding really how to analyze real estate on the back of a big coaster. Now, other than the cost today of running real estate, I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to go into some more broader ideas around how to find a place to buy real estate in. We're really concentrating on the where today. And a lot of that is for me around some basic rules when it comes to understanding real estate. I think when it comes to data, which is really one of the big conversation pieces around real estate. Data is something that annoys the bejeevers out of me. And I think one of the first rules when understanding value is price does not always equal value at all. And data and big data can be very, very alarming to real estate. It can um, absolutely send it in skewed directions. And I guess the classic example of that, you know, when coronavirus hit in 2020, you know, mid-2020, the banks put out reports that, you know, the real estate market was going to severely correct with, you know, 20 to 40% drops in value. And of course, none of that unfolded. In fact, the real estate market has gone up and in... Uh, the latest banking reports is probably going to shoot up by around 20% in value. So why is data so important to the real estate market? Why is it commonly wrong? How do we read between the lines with data? And really, I wanted today's program to, to 
more or less allow you to kind of read between the lines of some of the macro and micro data which is floating around so you can really just make sense of real estate and get on with it get on with your life build some wealth what are you waiting for uh, you're not getting any younger, let's face it. And I think Oscar Wilde said it the best. A cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And I often run into, I guess, a uh, lot of people in the marketplace and a lot of the conversations tend to uh, revert back to the idea of, well, you know, data says this and data says that. I can tell you a lot of data really needs to be interpreted. That's the, the, the simple science of understanding data. I certainly believe you take good data, you take good behavioral economics, you blend the two and you're going to get a property outcome. But some data is just skewed when it comes to real estate. For example, many of the fast suburbs which are growing the fastest when it comes to growth have never had real estate in them before. So no shit they're growing in value. They actually have basically new suburbs which got rezoned and all of a sudden uh, they've got new housing on them. And of course, that means the price uh, jumps up because prior to not having housing on it, it was fundamentally vacant land. All of a sudden, you put a house on it and the median jumps up and spikes up in value. You get these kind of fast growth suburbs, which have never traded before. There is no trading history, but the data will reveal they're kind of like the fastest growing um, suburbs. And you have to be able to interpret this stuff or it can send you on a wild goose chase. And I often see this uh, with high rental return suburbs they are only high rental return suburbs because the cost to buy real estate there is so low and no one has ever made money in those neighborhoods ever. And buying that real estate would be a absolute problem. You would be spending money on termites and toilets, yet the yield is the highest. And, and quite often the clickbait that floats around the real estate marketplace when it comes to data quite often can send people in a fairly skewed direction. And so I think there's some important things to analyze as a property investor, and I'm going to share them with you. I think uh, certainly some of the spikes in data are exactly just that. They're anomalies, and quite often when you look deeper into the scar tissue of what this data is actually trying to say – there is really a lack of data which is throwing out some anomalies, which doesn't mean those areas are good places to invest. So I love, I love in business, I love in life, I love in relationships, the idea of the six hat theory. I love it in real estate. Uh, if you're not familiar with the six hat theory, Basically, in uh, behavioral logic, in uh, humanistic logic, uh, we all wear a different hat at times. A white hat is a data-driven person. And we all wear all six hats, but some people are a bit more analytical and they often uh, wear what is known as the white hat. They wear this data-driven um, dynamic 
when they go around in their daily world. And many of them uh, create professions out of their white hat. You'll get analysts and economists, very white hat driven people. I'm a red hat person and uh, my predominant, I guess, uh, design or DNA is my gut feeling, my intuition. It really does allow me to uh, walk on planet Earth. I have very, very good internet in uh, intuition, and often when it comes to understanding behavioral economics, how things flow from. You know, uh, is a suburb a great walk score? Is a suburb, uh, you know, does a property have really beautiful design? This is quite often the fire and warmth of the red hat. Yellow hat is all about sunshine. Yellow hat people kind of um, just encourage everything and they're, they're so positive about everything and quite often data um, they they will they will find the the positive data and and never look at uh, you know the the less impressive data. The black hat, well, they are the judge. The black hat judges everything, and quite often in property investment, a lot of people forget to put on their black hat and judge real estate uh, for what the real problems of real estate is. So. Today on this show, I'm going to sort of swing and put all these different hats on so that we uh, can sort of navigate through this big coaster guide to finding out uh, macro and micro economics. And of course, we have the green hat and the blue hat, and the green hat is all about creative thinking. The blue hat is all about uh, control, controlling things, right? I need to feel like I'm in control. Uh, for me, I, I don't really need to feel like I'm in control. Um, it's not something that I really care about. I more care about um, intuition, uh, really having a bit of a black hat, being able to, to see cautious things. And for me, having a bit of a white hat, understanding appropriate data. So the point of talking about the hats is I think in the real estate marketplace, you need three of them. You need the white hat to be able to look into data. You need the red hat to see through data uh, and to uh, also, you know, bring in some other context to real estate. And you also need the black hat to make sure that you're not, um, you know, jumping into, uh, you know, the wrong property altogether. So obviously... Data does not always equal value. And I think the best thing to understand when it comes to the real estate marketplace is that, you know, real estate is an emotional sport. And despite data, despite rental returns, supply, despite supply and demand figures, at the end of the day, the most people shopping in the real estate market are emotional-led property uh, people. They are buying on emotion and justifying their emotion with uh, some sort of logic or data. So the first thing we, we really need to comprehend when it comes to the big coaster is actually real estate is not a data sport at all. It's, it's actually an emotional sport. And the more emotional our real estate can be, the more uh, feeling it gives people, the more it will impress people. People buy real estate 
all the time based on, you know, how amazing a kitchen is or how big a backyard is or just, you know, what direction the property faces. Uh, you know, north facing, you know, for many states is an amazing direction to own real estate. This is not something you will see in a data report from Westpac Bank. You just won't, right? They will talk about, you know, fiscal policy. They'll talk about, um, you know, recent growth rates. They'll talk about all sorts of things, but they uh, absolutely can't get down to this niche level when it comes to data and real estate. And that is the fact that quite often some of the best behavioral logic behind real estate is why real estate grows. The fact that a view can create money the fact that uh, you know, um, you know, a nice design, a nice functional home can make money is quite often not quite understood, particularly by a lot of white hat investors who are kind of like data investors. Uh, yeah, for the most part, you know, um, you know, there's this other part to the puzzle. Now, one is not right, one is not wrong. I am merely pointing out, I think on the back of my beer coaster, I want a bit of both. I want a bit of both. And I teach this thing called the Forex Growth Plan. Inside the Forex Growth Plan, there is both data, but also behavioral logic when it comes to real estate. And I think it's fair to say that uh, when we analyze real estate, we want to look at it from both a macro and micro level. So back of the beer coaster, rule number two. So we want to go into macro and micro data. We want to look at uh, an area to buy in from a from a large point of view and also from a small point of view. And so the data I would be looking at when it comes to doing this is a few things. So we'll uh, we'll check out what those are and see if uh, if they're right for you. Now the first thing I think. Um, when it comes to macro and micro is we want to start with the property cycles. Now, right now, right now everything is going up. That is not normal. That is really uh, an abnormal situation to have fairly well every property market in Australia moving up and rising in value at the same time. Obviously, a lot of that has been led by stimulus and also low rates. And so we need to be able to look through some of the good bits and the bad bits of that. Um, And certainly, as we know, when we study the data of cycles, generally cycles uh, will move in spurts. And so the best way to understand a property market cycle is you'll go through two or three years worth of great growth. Then you'll go through two or three years of stagnation or uh, growth going backwards. And then you'll kind of um, go through this sort of seesaw effect of this rolling performance of real estate. A lot of people kind of think real estate basically, uh, you know, starts at the day they buy it and it will always go up in value. And each year there's going to be another 5% growth and another 5% growth. And obviously, sometimes um, from an analytical point of view, putting the white hat on here, if you use cash flow calculators, quite often those cash flow calculators that project 
capital growth over a 10-year period, if you know the ones I'm talking about, they're an Excel spreadsheet, and you uh, apply a capital growth rate. And uh, a lot of people will go, well, it's year four and my property's not worth, you know, um, $100,000 more. And uh, quite often I think that analytical white hat brain is not taking in a little bit of the red hat world that, you know, you need some intuition with this stuff. The market does not always go up in value. It does not always just, uh, you know, go um, vertical. It basically can spend periods in stagnation and periods of growth. And, you know, I've seen, for example, the Perth market lose value for 63 months in a row before it finally hit the floor. And so think about that. That's, you know, five and a half, six years of negative territory in the real estate marketplace. So I think we need to understand where if we're coming into the property market, the the day we buy is not the day the cycle begins. We are usually, for the most part, jumping in mid-cycle. And so we need to understand some of the dynamics around that. So for me, one of the big rules of macro and microeconomics is to begin with the cycles. Where am I in the cycle? And a lot of that is based around really the price and often the yield of of real estate. Yield is a pretty good uh, performer when it comes to the value proposition of real estate. For example, today, Brisbane, which has arguably missed a couple of cycles of recent times, uh, the yield is 5%, right? And the reason the yield is 5% in um, many pockets of Brisbane is that the price of housing and, and apartments have has not moved until really about 12 months ago. Um, you look at Sydney, for example. Sydney, uh, the yield is about, you know, one or two or two and a half percent. Why? Because the price has jumped in value uh, over a few cycles quite rapidly. And so it's arguable that right now there's more value in, for example, Brisbane over Sydney. And by studying the cycles, we can often tell why. And at the moment, it's really a better value proposition to me, Brisbane, than it is Sydney. Melbourne's a better value proposition to me than Sydney. Uh, And I guess the yield is a good way to understand that. But also, let's just put our red hat on here for a moment. Is it more probable that uh, buying an investment property for $500,000 with a rent of $500 a week, that uh, we're actually going to be able to hold real estate a lot longer than buying real estate for a million dollars that rents for $500 a week? Well, I think you would obviously, uh, you know, suggest the first one. And so we have to understand with property cycles, when it comes to buying real estate, we've got to be able to mathematically apply what we're trying to do to the cycle. And I see this a lot in Sydney. You know, people are mathematically biting off the wrong property. They they are buying something which 
Um, even though Sydney's going up in value, don't get me wrong, Sydney's performing really well. Sydney's going to get another rock star performance of capital growth. So we all know the cycles are going up. So you can't go wrong at the moment when it comes to capital growth. But we need to also understand where the value is. Remember, uh, value and uh, is is quite often a little bit different to the results of real estate. Where is the value is what I'm looking for in property cycles. I'm a value investor. Now, property cycles, when we've tracked them in the history of property cycles, you know, you get periods of spurts. You get four years going up, you get a couple of years going down, then, you know, government medals, there's a command-led economy, uh, government will put lending restrictions on real estate, all sorts of things. And then, you know, slowly but surely, over the long term, real estate performs. And that is gold. That is gold. We know that over the long term, real estate performs. But, you know, Brisbane, uh, over the last uh, 20 years, has underperformed, underperformed. And really, um, quite often we split property cycles into two. You've got the 18-year property cycle and you've got the 13-year property cycle. And so Sydney has done really two 13-year property cycles in the period that Brisbane is just getting started after its 18-year property cycle. It's kind of amazing, right? So um, the compounding growth in Sydney has been spectacular. So owning real estate in Sydney uh, has been very rewarding. Brisbane, not so rewarding. But is past performance also an indicator of future performance? Personally, no, it is not. And it's very probable that into the future, when Sydney just has one cycle over an 18 to 20 year period now, because of the price points of Sydney, Sydney's medium is now 1.3, Brisbane will actually have two cycles. It will compound twice on itself. And so uh, even parts of Melbourne and parts of Canberra will actually potentially have two property cycles to Sydney's one. And the one thing I love about Sydney's property market is it really does indicate to us what's possible in real estate. It's as simple as that, right? Uh, the fact that, you know, Sydney's property market is now 1.3 in value and you can go to Brisbane and get two for one plus change tells me there is a value proposition, for example, in Brisbane. Uh, I can see from uh, Melbourne, there is a value proposition uh, given particularly Melbourne is, you know, the same sort of population base as Sydney. So again, cycles are a big thing for me on the back of the beer coaster. Not uh, so much um, who's in the best cycle. Uh, in other words, oh, you know, uh, in normal times you go, oh, you know, Sydney's rising in value. I've got to jump into Sydney. Uh, where is the value proposition? That is what I'm looking for. And uh, I guess quite often, you know, one of the conversations we have with uh, investors is the idea that there is demand in the market and we need to really understand where that demand is strongest, right? So remember, there are 
four groups, four or five groups in the real estate market. If you include foreign investors, there's five groups. Uh, there's the foreign investors, there's investors, there's downsizers, upgraders, and first homeowners. So to understand where a cycle is at, it is quite often a rule to work out who is shopping. Now, if just one of the groups is shopping uh, quite robustly, then there potentially isn't enough heat in the market for the cycle to go up. So from that data, we can work out whether we should pay more, pay less. This is kind of what we're looking at, right? And so if you look at what's going on right now, all of the groups are shopping bar the foreign investors, but no doubt they'll be back. We have local investors shopping. Everyone knows, get your money out of the bank, put it into another asset class, and it's going to inflate. Your money is not inflating in the bank. It's as simple as that. However, you put that money into real estate, you're getting a huge amount of growth right now. Uh, first homeowners uh, have been buying at the greatest level since 2009. So we have not seen levels like this for literally over a decade. Obviously, a lot of that has been driven by government stimulus, by government allowing a $25,000 building boost for first home buyers uh, or home buyers to buy new real estate. And of course, this is absolutely um, bringing huge amounts of buyers into the marketplace. And there are still some great government, state government or territory government boosters, which is pushing first homeowners into the market. So we can see the first home buyers are buying. We can see the investors are buying. Upgraders, if you look at the auction market and the clearance rates on the weekend, extremely, incredibly high. Obviously, for the most part, upgraders are generally battling it out at auction. And the downsizers. This group is amazing to me. This is something which is really a new, even a new trend in real estate is downsizers pre-downsizing. What we are seeing is a lot of real estate is getting sold to people who want to live in it 10 years from now. They're buying it as an investment, but also with the principle that they will use it down the track. Obviously, with the price rise, people aren't silly. They're going, you know what? Uh, if I want to downsize it to that beautiful little beach or to that part of the Sunshine Coast or that little sneaky urban pocket of Melbourne, I better buy something now because fast forward 10 years, I'm just going to be paying a lot more for the asset. So the downsizer market is both downsizing, but also pre-downsizing, which is incredible. I speak to a lot of real estate agents in my job trying to find real estate that creates a financial outcome for investors. And one of the conversations I recently had was just that. Um, I was speaking to a realtor and he was saying they were inundated with much older Australians pre-planning downsizing uh, with no intention of moving to the asset in the next five years, but buying it as something that they can lock away knowing that part of their world is sorted. 
And it makes sense. It does make sense. And I've even coached property investors to do this themselves, that potentially some of the best investments in the market today are not investments you're never going to use. They're actually investments you can absolutely use at a different life stage, evolutionary real estate. So the thing I think is really important today as buying power drops that we think about, well, do we do we buy something that is also going to be capable to be used later in life? This kind of idea of uh, almost like creating a future use of the asset, a higher and better use of our life. Uh, we often talk about the higher and better use of real estate. What about the higher and better use of our life? And of course, real estate offers that. So these are the kind of things I'm looking at on the back of a beer coaster here. Remember, data is great and there's you know uh, ridiculous data that floats around. Data scares a lot of people. Uh, people look at data of you know future forecasts of what is needed in Australia. You know, you look at the future forecasts of how many properties are needed in, uh, for example, Sydney over the next 35 years is 1.7 million dwellings. That data in outer context would scare the shit out of people. Oh my God, there's 1.7 million more dwellings needed. Okay, well, what other uh, data can we look at? Well, the population figures. So again, I think a lot of this stuff is, um, you know, can be spooky to people, but I just bring it back to basics. Like real estate is an emotional sport. Let's buy some real estate, which buzzes people, gives people a bit of, um, you know, a dopamine hit. They get emotionally attached to it and they're going to pay more in rent. And the day you want to sell, they're going to pay more for it the day they sell. We don't want to do that in Lake Weirdo and we don't want to do that uh, in a marketplace which is perhaps flooded with real estate or a marketplace which is, uh, you know, a bit immature or whatever. We want to do that in credible marketplaces that pass the data test. So, of course, for me, the rule five on the beer coaster is the idea of um, pie, population infrastructure and economics. Now, we talked about this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this section, but there are six key drivers to macro growth. One is pie and the other is a momentum driver. Population, infrastructure, economics or employment. We want to buy where the population is strong, where there's lots of infrastructure and where there's lots of employment. Then we can work out as well demographics, supply and demand, and also the yield. This kind of tells us what a marketplace that is going to be solid. Uh, and of course, when we look at this stuff, there is a bit of an aggregate size to the conversation, right? Now, Dubbo is going to have... Uh, you know, its own supply and demand metrics. It's probably going to have a growing population. It has some diverse jobs. Uh, it's got, you know, several demographics. Its yield's probably very tight right now. And no doubt it's it's going to be influenced in the future 
through upgrades of the main roads and infrastructure. But the aggregate size of that city compared to Melbourne is, is not comparable. So the infrastructure projects that you're getting in some of the larger communities are just not comparable to the smaller communities. And we have to associate that to the what we're paying for real estate. When you buy a property in uh, Melbourne, you're also buying 240 kilometers of tram line. You're buying uh, tunnel systems. You're buying a trillion dollar CBD you're buying, obviously, a train network. So all of a sudden, you know, we have to put this in context. Is a $500,000 property in Dubbo worth more uh, or or a better deal, if you like, than a $700,000 property in Brisbane? I don't think so because the aggregate size of the market is completely different. Remember... Uh, a va- you know, Oscar Wilde basically says, a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Well, I tell you what, you're forgetting to value infrastructure. You're forgetting to value population. The value of jobs to me is the most, probably the most important thing that bigger places just have more industry and as such more jobs. And the one thing that I love about real estate is income. I think income is the most important uh, principle of buying real estate, that capital growth is great, but at the end of the day, it's unreliable. Growth goes up, growth goes down. Um, Sometimes we can even uh, use equity and we can be negative equity. Growth is a weird thing to me. A lot of people get fixated on growth and I know why, because growth creates more assets, which is cool, But I buy real estate. Uh, I love growth. I've made a lot of growth this year. I'll talk about my growth this year. But at the end of the day, what is really more important to me is the $1,000 a week that property is going to give me and what that can do to my lifestyle and how it can fund my retirement and living of passive income. The fact that cash flow comes weekly. Every single week, tenants, a whole bunch of them, put money in bank accounts that comes to me. That is more reliable than whether the market's going to go up or down or sideways, right? And the market does. It goes up and down and sideways. But I think we need to put some value on, obviously, the idea of PI, population, infrastructure, economics. And layering over and above that is the idea that we, in big areas get great demographics, we want to understand the yield, and we want to understand supply and demand. Now, in a macro level, these are what I call uh, momentum uh, drivers. So supply and demand, you can work that stuff out, right? You can work out what the demand of the market is doing. And certainly from a macro level, you uh, can understand really if the market is going to be reshaped by supply, if you're in a large period of supply or a low period of supply. And right now, obviously, we're in a very, very low period of supply. We have a bit of a problem. It's no stock uh, floating around. So generally, um, you know, that also comes in waves. Sometimes there's more stock, sometimes there's not. 
And the bigger the market, again, this is just the aggregate size of of real estate. You know, the fact that a thousand apartments might, you know, come into inner Sydney uh, is kind of a moot point to me. People get hung up on this data. Oh, a thousand apartments coming into inner Sydney. Well, the aggregate size of Sydney is going to be an 8 million person city. So it makes sense that that would occur, right? So we need to understand some of the context of this stuff. But certainly, I think uh, understanding this on the back of a beer coaster is a good way to understand it. So the first thing we want to do is when we're thinking about real estate is take into consideration the extra value a marketplace offers, the aggregate size. Uh, so again, um, you know, Melbourne's aggregate size is much bigger than Adelaide. Adelaide doesn't have 240 kilometers of tram line. So when we do the value proposition, we're trying to weigh it up. If we can still find a good deal uh, in Melbourne, um, while it's still possible, uh, we should grab it. That's, that's, that's just the idea of buying a bigger aggregate. So again, um, we want to understand that uh, an economy, the bigger it is, the safer it is, the more industries it has, and that's just the way it works. And so I've always sort of taught the top-down rule and I was helping people buy more frequently in Sydney back in sort of 2011, 12, 13, um, back in 2010, we were getting yields of like 5 6%. Today, the yield is 1% and 2%. So the yield has left the market because the purchase price has gone up too much. Now, I'm floating around looking for this great sort of yield variation, but I'm also applying the aggregate size of the market so that I buy uh, a bigger marketplace. And of course, what we often can see in... Um, understanding the industries of areas that just, you know, larger communities have bigger industries. It's as simple as that. And of course, some cities are big, but they just have no industry. And this is, again, something we need to be very cognizant of because we could go, for example, and go, well, the value proposition in Cairns today, very good. Um, properties haven't, you know, jumped through the roof. Um, they are growing but there's still value. What is the industry of Cairns? Well, it's simply just tourism. There really is not much more, a little bit of agriculture. What else? I don't know. There's a fish and chip shop. There's, uh, you know, you can get, uh, you can go to the weird night markets and buy um, smug boots. What else? What else do people do in Cairns? Uh, this is this is the conversation, right? So all of a sudden, the aggregate of industries of that marketplace not so much fun to me. And so I'm very mindful. I'm putting my black hat on going aggregate of industry, pretty, you know, pretty ordinary. Why not uh, stick to a, a bigger marketplace, right? And of course, uh, in doing so, we need to understand that uh, also at periods of time, major companies influence all marketplaces. And so real estate, of course, grows. We need a lot more property. We need a new property every three minutes and 55 seconds in this country. So we need to understand what is occurring from industry inside the real estate marketplace 
and what they are producing and throwing out into the market. And again, this is something on the back of my big coast I always look at. I know pockets of Brisbane where people are buying today and they have no clue that huge publicly listed companies own major, major precincts and have up to 50,000 dwellings they're going to bring to certain pockets of that city. Now, does that stop me worrying about buying in Brisbane? No, it doesn't because I know to produce 50,000 homes is a 20-year thing. But does it stop me buying next to that? Well, yes, it does. It says to me, well, there's better value. There's better ways to go and there's better deals to be had if I can just work out you know, what is going on inside these kind of marketplaces. So obviously, uh, we want to control the outcome as best as possible of our decision-making and we need to understand these competitive tensions, the aggregated size of the market, the aggregated size of the industry, the aggregated size of the scale of what is coming through the system. And obviously, for us as property investors, this allows us um, you know, to, to make some pretty clear decisions, I think. I think this is the data that, that I like looking at, right? And this is, you know, i got the white hat on. How many uh, properties are going to come to this precinct? Is it, a, is, it a, um, is it absorbing that stock properly or is it going to flood the market or is it going to completely change the market landscape? These are the conversations I have. So the next rule for me, is obviously if you're drilling down to understanding real estate, I always teach that there are four ways money moves in real estate. The first one is discretionary real estate. This is real estate generally over, you know, 1.5 to, you know, $50 million. Uh, And it's interesting when we look at the data at the moment in real estate, one would assume that when we read the report, oh, you know, um, Sydney's growing by 20%. Well, it's not exactly true. Um, What we are seeing is certain types of real estate is growing by that amount and much other uh, parts of the real estate market are not. They're not moving whatsoever. And so, again, the four sections I coach people in is section one, discretionary real estate. It is the most expensive real estate and as such, it has big swings. It can go up really quickly. It can also go down really quickly. Uh, However, if you're capable of owning real estate in it over the long term, you become very wealthy holding it. Next section is aspirational real estate. This section, again, is probably um, a great section for many property investors to get into. The aspirational part of the market moves quickly. It's very, uh, it's a very safe part of the market. It is an upper middle class pocket of the marketplace. Most property investors, though, buy affordable real estate, and they do that because they are trying to afford to buy an investment property. And this is where really investment properties can go um, up or down, right? You want to buy an affordable property that ends up becoming an aspirational property. You don't want to buy an affordable property that ends up going south and becoming basically something that you just hate and is very inequitable. 
you spend your time dealing with toilet seats and termites. Uh, for us, we want to. We all want to buy real estate that goes up the food chain, not down the food chain. And for me, this is. I mean, this is how I've approached real estate on the back of a beer coaster for a very long time. Uh, I've bought aspirational real estate that's become discretionary real estate. I've bought affordable real estate that's become aspirational real estate. I've got affordable real estate that is still in the affordable pocket of the section. I've bought a lemon, which was affordable and actually went backwards and is now inequitable. It's a terrible piece of real estate. So I think it's so important. And I think because most people buy real estate in the affordable section of the property market, I rank uh, section as A, B, C, and D. A grade real estate is a prime location, rarely unrented, has quality tenants. And those tenants are what we refer to as wants based tenants. They want to live in the asset, they want to live in that precinct. They don't need to, but they're going to pay extra because they want to. And quite often, you, you know, a good example might be, for example, Bondi Beach, Sydney. People don't need to live there. They want to live there, right? And so all of a sudden, uh, wants-based rent is just much higher than needs-based rent. So A-grade, prime location, rarely unrented, quality tenants. The area understands it can get rental growth because it is a wants-based marketplace. Uh, Really, the asset has very low outgoing costs and capital costs to prop it up. You're not spending money on termites and toilet seats. It has a strong appeal. B grade, rather than being a prime location, it's a good location. It has mild turnover of tenants, um, but again, wants-based tenants, really good appeal. And again, it has an element of the ability for rents to grow so your retirement income grows. Where it starts to struggle is this kind of C and D grade real estate. Really, it's a lower grade location. Really, the uh, people that live there need roof over their head. That's basically why they're living there. Uh, there is no rental growth strategy. No one can tell me what the rental growth strategy is. I'm like, what's the rental growth strategy of owning this asset? They're like, well, the market goes up. Bullshit. Have you seen the latest wage increase which has occurred in Australia. Oh my God, 2 million Australians today are on the minimum wage. They just got a dollar per hour wage increase. So every single day they are now making an extra $8 a day and being taxed on that privilege. That ain't a place where I want to invest in real estate. I do not want that market as my future retirement income Absolutely not. So this affordable section of the market, again, on the back of a beer coaster, I'm looking for the A and B section. I'm trying to avoid the C section so that, uh, you know, I don't end up with an inequitable property with tenants that are broke. And the D section, you know, this is, again, this much challenged, lower socioeconomic market made marketplace, really poor location, struggles to rent, rents to wrap bags. Uh, Every now and then you're probably in the tribunal uh, kicking out some weird gopnik or icy who's got some strange, terrifying dog that lives in your backyard and you're spending money on termites and some sort of roof leak. That is what life is like to own these kind of degrade pieces of real estate. Remember, 
discretionary, aspirational, affordable, inequitable. This is all, all real estate actually is. And when I look at, I guess, the performance this year of, of growth, now I did a podcast about 12 months ago and I said, I'm going to make a million dollars this year. I don't need a million dollars. I'm going to make a million dollars. The rich are getting richer uh, and the poor are getting a dollar increase on their wages every single uh, uh, hour now. That's basically all that's happened through coronavirus. The richer have got richer. People with assets have got richer. Uh, people with you know bucket loads of assets have got really rich and uh, those that can least afford to live in society got a $1 per hour wage increase. How amazing is that? So I fundamentally said about a year ago, myself, plenty of my clients uh, who are in the 1% club, they own a lot of real estate. There's only 1% of Australia, of property investors, about 19,000 people that actually own five or more properties, right? And, uh, you know, those people probably make a million dollars this year, Right. But the caveat to that is where their real estate actually is. Now, I only have one property in the discretionary end of the market. This uh, section of the market is has grown the most. And again, this is where data sometimes is just bullshit. The 20% growth in Sydney has been fundamentally fueled by the discretionary end of the market. I've made a million dollars this year out of an asset in the discretionary end of the market, a million bucks. Already made it. Uh, when I look at my aspirational deals, I've made $600,000. When I look at my affordable deals, I've made about $200,000 in growth around Australia. And if I look in my inequitable deals, I haven't really done uh, much at all, right? So all that's happened to my inequitable deal, I only got one of them, is I can flog it. And I've got to get around to doing that. I keep telling you I'm going to do it. I'm, I haven't haven't pulled the trigger. Uh, but there's a market for it now. Uh, prior to that, there was just no market. So it's not like I'm going to make any money. I'm going to lose money. But um, at least there's a market to buy it. Some other sucker, right? So I've already pulled about 1.8, right? Uh, from what I can see, talking to real estate agents that run my assets, that it's about up, up about 1.8. I don't need 1.8. Um, the equity for me is is great. I'm more interested in cash flow. I'm more interested in what I can get paid every single week. I know some of that equity will probably disappear um, with you know the way markets move. They go up, they go down, they go sideways. But it's interesting if you can leapfrog your real estate from affordable and make it aspirational, the rate of growth is just much, much higher. And we often taught this um, when we used to play this simulated game of Monopoly um, when, you know, live events were a thing. We used to pay basically a cash flow game. And what you would find is really people who get wealthy fastest buy the best assets. And it's it's really... Um, you know, that's just the way it works, right? So one of the jobs we've got as a property investor is to kind of move our money to the most premium deals. And that can take a few goes at it. That can mean we buy real estate in the affordable end of the market, make it aspirational, sell it, use that aspirational money to buy another aspirational property that ends up becoming discretionary. That's just, that's just how real estate works, right? And 
you know, for the most part, we teach buy well, never sell, but that doesn't mean buy bad and hold on. That's, that's just, that doesn't work like that. So again, I think we've got to sometimes use our data hat. We've got to use our red hat. The red hat is kind of this gut instinct and emotional vibe. Um, and I, people buy on emotions. They, they absolutely buy on emotions and use logic and data to justify it. That's just the way it is. For me, rule number eight, I think we're up to eight, is uh, when it comes to understanding real estate and, and potentially, um, you know, on the back of a beer coaster, putting down a maneuver. I personally uh, am a fan of buying newer real estate in more established neighborhoods. That's just my drink of choice. Uh, if I was going to the bar, I would be, hey, young lady needs a fluffy duck and I will have a newer property with no capital costs in a much older marketplace. Thank you. That's what I would like to drink. That's my drink of choice in the real estate marketplace. It's just me. It doesn't mean I'm right or wrong. It's just what I do, right? I like more established suburbs, but I like buying um, I like buying uh, newer real estate, so I'm not sucker punched with capital costs. And if you look at some of the most expensive deals traded over, you know, 2020 and 2021, they are newer properties in established neighborhoods. Um, and so sometimes this conversation around new or old sort of comes into vogue a lot with property investors. Uh, really, new carries a premium in established property markets. So that is is fundamentally how it works. And um, it carries a premium, but it also receives a premium. It gets a premium rent. Um, and when people you know, go to buy it, they pay more for it. Ring any real estate agent and they'll tell you the same thing. That's fundamentally how it works. And particularly inside the aspirational and discretionary section of the marketplace, that's absolutely how it works. So you can go to the same street. If you ever wondered why one house can go for $2 million and one 1.4 on the same street, well, it usually is age and age is an emotional thing for an emotional buyer. So... I'm, uh, that's my drink of choice, right? And I think um, one of the things that we need to understand about this drink of choice is that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a, there's a method to the madness, I guess you would say. So I like old money, old, uh, sorry, I like new properties in old money marketplaces. I also like new properties next door to old money marketplaces or I like newer properties in well-organized uh, new precincts, right? They're the three things I, I really love with a uh, probably a, uh, a small bias to, uh, in my own head, to, um, you know, newer properties in old suburbs. This is the way I rock, right? And, you know, I guess when people are referring to new properties, beware of them. Um, what I comprehend is absolutely the same thing. Be wary of, you know, a brand new cow paddock in the middle of nowhere that's not um, a well-organized community. However, a well-organized master plan community um, can be absolutely a cracking place to buy real estate. And if you've ever listened to my house and land podcast, it'll kind of allude to understanding the well-organized communities absolutely work. Um, 
you know, a new property in Docklands doesn't, you know, that's not an old established suburbs. Docklands never existed 20 years ago. It was invented by Jeff Kennett, the Premier of Victoria. Um, it is not an old established neighbourhood. I am talking, you know, precincts that um, have a trading history. And the reason I look for these places and the three the three places I look for being a new property in an old money market, new property next door to an old money market or new property in a well-organized community or newer property, I should say. So I'm just not, you know, getting termites and toilet seats to look after is three things. Three things happen in these precincts. One, you've got a thing called equity lock. So people have made money usually in these areas before. They've got a proven history of capital growth. And as such, the trading in these precincts is much slower than, uh, you know, other other marketplaces. They Not a lot of stock comes to market. There is not a lot of um, people that uh, on sell. And the reason is a lot of the people who live there basically have already recycled equity. So they kind of been there, done that, and they made money and they're sticking it out. The other lock is capital gains lock. For the investors that have already bought there, they've seen their real estate go up. And because it's gone up, they don't want to sell their real estate because they would be paying capital gains. So a lot of investors who are part of the demand group that maybe were in the suburb 10, 20 years ago also don't put their asset on the marketplace. And quite often you see this, markets that have yet to mature or go up in value, um, you know, investors will sell. They will resell for what they bought for. Um, they will resell at a loss because there is no capital gain. As soon as an investor gets a win and gets capital gain, um, they quite often lock it down and keep the asset as one that they can recycle equity from, but also um, because of the capital gains tax ruling, they often decide, you know what, this is better to keep this one. And also, obviously, the more mature a market is, generally there is a level of lower debt in other words, people have been biting off their mortgage for 20 years already in a precinct. That is great. Or 30 years or 50 years or there's debt-free people in a neighborhood. So for me, I think um, as we know, you know, society is morphing and, you know, there will be another 1.7 million dwellings in Sydney. Uh, there will be a lot of new docklands, precincts and home bushes in Sydney. I would not buy in them. That's not my vibe. I'm more of a find me, um, you know, a well-traded suburb and I'll go there or find me, you know, a really good um, new precinct that is, you know, is world-class and I will go there um, or I'll buy next door an old money market. But um, for me, when I go to the bar, that's my drink of choice, right? That's how I rock and uh, seems to work so far. So again, I think... Um, for me, when I'm writing this stuff down on the back of a beer coaster, the pub, this is what I'm looking for. The next thing for me, or the next rule, is to put the black hat on. And I've talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to harp on about it, but you need the black hat. And in real estate, we uh, can minimize risk by putting the black hat on and understanding our operation risk of real estate. 
how much does it cost operate? What is the rent? What is the expenses? What is the return on investment? Uh, is there future capital costs? Will I be running back to this property yearly, dumping money to prop it up because it's dying? Uh, operational costs is a big black hat thing I look at. I look at the liquidity, how sellable the property is if I need to um, maneuver, to pivot, to do some things. And I've had to pivot before in uh, in my life. I've had to certainly pivot on a couple of occasions and sadly let go of real estate because um, my day job got harder and I wasn't making as much money as I once did. And that um, a good real estate, which was very sellable, um, sold within 30 days and I had more money uh, from the real estate than I did from my job. And so again, how liquidable is the property? This is where you put the black hat on the judge. That thing's not liquidable. That's not going to sell. Uh, that thing's got too many operational costs. I don't want to be putting money into uh, fixing roof repairs constantly. Um, again, black hat, black hat, black hat. And as we know, the insurance risk of real estate is one of the biggest things we're seeing unfold in society. And that's obviously to do with definitely with um, extreme weather conditions, which continue to unfold. And of course, some of the liability around real estate and changes and transformations in uh, certainly how real estate is being governed when it comes to fire safety and thermal control and things like this. So we want to have a rule for the black hat. And the, for me, um, operational risk, liquidity risk and insurance risk is where you take that. But then we want to put the white hat, white hat back on and do some micro discussions around you know, what's good in real estate. And I think, again, for me, finding the right location is as much about some of the macro drivers like demographics, uh, jobs, population, diversity of industry, as it is to uh, some of the micro drivers like income levels, rental returns, past suburb performance, the liquidity of a suburb, vacancy rates, industry performance of uh, the jobs in that 20-minute neighborhood, economic growth, what has that actually been like in the uh, context of that marketplace? Lifestyle factors, how important are they today? I mean, these are something that absolutely goes on my beer coaster. You know, some of the stuff, again, you just can't put a value on it. And this is, again, where I think data, some of the big data is is useless. Um what is the value of a beach on Sydney Harbour? I don't know. You tell me. I think a lot of people would have a high opinion of that. If you could own real estate near that, that's that's valuable. Um, does a suburb median growth rate or the median value of real estate have anything to do with that? Probably not, right? It, it doesn't. So again, what are the economic value of an urban forest? or a cool coffee shop precinct? What is the real value of um, a suburban, urban beach? What is the real value of, you know, again, some really good third places which are walkable like great parks and, and uh, you know, cycleways? Real estate sometimes from a data and medium point of view does not tell the entire picture is what I'm 
trying to reference here. So finding these locations is 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 really important. And I think some of the lifestyle factors, some of the biggest and most important, and coronavirus have reminded us just how important they actually are. Uh, for me, one of the big things is, you know, private public spending, what's going on, and really how the council looks after the neighbourhood. Is it adding value to the public realm? Are people adding value to the public realm? Do they want a better community? Or are they happy walking down the street and seeing a shopping trolley stuck and shoved on the side of the road and Gopniks sitting in Adidas pants drinking schooners? If that's uh, the public realm, that's not for me. That's generally where I would run from real estate. So uh, a big conversation, I think, when it comes to data is Rule 11, which is socioeconomics. To me, this is one of the big conversation pieces of real estate today. Better un- better way to explain it is income versus dwelling values. And I like to find suburbs or product or property where the income really outweighs the cost of the dwelling. And the suburb has a good income profile and the dwelling is a fair and reasonable price. One could argue that uh, today, much of Western Sydney's recent capital growth is fueled by low rates, but actually has no real intrinsic value to it. In other words, it is not bearable. If rates went up, really prices would come back down because uh, there is no high wages in those precincts. The only reason people are paying more for property is low rates. But to me, that's kind of flawed. Uh, On the back of my beer coaster, I'm going putting a line through that. I don't like that. I like the idea that the income can sustain price movement. And that is what I'm looking for. And uh, quite often in real estate, we call this, uh, you know, income to the price ratio. And probably the, the biggest example of that is Hong Kong. Basically, Hong Kong is around 22 times the average wage, the average income of the city of Hong Kong. So if you're earning $100,000, your average property is $2.2 million. Sydney is, is pretty high. It's like um, around 15 times multiple. So if you're earning $100,000, you know, the average house price is, uh, is like 1.5, right? So again, it's, yeah, it's being fueled by low rates. And the balance between the two is too far apart for me. I personally don't like the look of much of the pockets of Western Sydney for that reason. Now, real estate markets can be three things, bearable, equitable, or sustainable. That's it. Bearable, equitable, or sustainable. The whole of the Australian property market today is what we would call bearable. People who live in the properties and own the properties can bear the costs to run those properties. They can bear the costs because rates are the lowest they've ever been. They will be low for a very long time. We understand that. The Australian property market today is bearable. However, there are areas which I would call equitable. 
And they are not equitable because rates are low. They are equitable because wages are high and property values are very affordable at this point in time. So you're looking for good wages, affordable property, and you've got the ability for that property to grow in value and equity to come out of it. That is why we call it an equitable market. And where real estate markets can be equitable for a long period of time, in other words, the income profile of the suburb and the property value is really affordable, uh, you can get a sustainable real estate market. And that's where we will see sustained levels of capital growth. And again, you probably can see more sustained levels of capital growth in pockets of Melbourne and Brisbane than you can, for example, in Western Sydney because of the wage profile, the income versus property value profile. So it's an interesting way for me. Um, I've always analyzed real estate like that and I've always found that um, real estate, the value proposition of the real estate just grows um, better and longer based on the income profile of a neighborhood versus the uh, fundamentally the dwelling value of the neighborhood. And uh, where you see the biggest variation is a good way to understand data at a micro level. And really, I guess, as we know, we're a lot of people jumping into the market because of low rates. Is that going to end up coming back to bite? Well, I certainly think in many pockets of Australia, they are simply bearable markets. If the parameters of the market change, they or owners in that real estate community will not bear the cost to own real estate um, at a higher level. They will be, uh, so real estate will come down in value and people who bought late in the cycle, um, if they can't hold the real estate, they will take a loss and that happens. That's real estate. People make money, people lose money. Uh, We've got to make more than certainly what we lose And uh, if we stick to equitable markets as opposed to bearable markets, you're going to be absolutely fine. You're going to have a very sustainable, long experience when it comes to owning real estate. For me, the next rule is the absorption rate. And uh, I love understanding the absorption rate. For me, I spend about $150,000 a year on a thing called Cordell's, which tells me where development applications are being lodged. I can look into a suburb and see... Uh, really, how many properties are on the market, what the typical rate of sale is, and how many future property uh, uh, properties are coming to market through new construction in an old established area. And I can fairly well work out whether we are about to go into a period of oversupply or undersupply. And uh, a lot of that is to do with the idea of just how quickly real estate gets absorbed how much stock is on the market, how quickly it moves, and how much future stock is coming through the pipe that we need to account for. And of course, um, understanding that, you can work out whether a market is illiquid or liquid. And uh, for me, it is a really cool piece of data. Sadly, a lot of, um, I guess, non-professionals can't get access to that data uh, readily, um, particularly with DAs. Uh, Cordell's allows me to look three years into the future of a suburb and see if there's much production of new stock coming into that suburb. Now, quite often, again, we have to work out um, 
with understanding Australia and the context of Australia, uh, 60% of new real estate is going to come to old established precincts. So if you can find an old established precinct with a low amount of stock, um, that's a good thing. Uh, and again, 40% will go to new areas that never existed before um, and places, again, I'd be wary of going to. They've never existed before. Um, again, if they're part of, you know, much older parts of the public realm, that's cool. But if they never existed, they're in Weedoville. Uh, you know, why go there? Why rush out to these boony sub-regional precincts that have never existed before when you can buy well-established traded real estate as a property investor? And you can do that by choosing real estate, which is going to la uh, last the period of time. It's going to last a long time for you. You're going to get to 70 years of age and not have all of these costs to upgrade the property. So we want to think through this stuff on the back of a big coaster and the absorption rate is one of them. Probably the next one I like looking at when it comes to data is the ripple effect. I've used this a lot. I've simply find a suburb which is very popular and I buy next door. It's as simple as that, right? You find the ripple, you work out where people are really um, enjoying buying real estate. It's very, it's a hot spot. It's, it's popular. Um, and of course, just by going an extra kilometer or two or to the next suburb along, you get the same infrastructure, you get the same amenity, you get the same lifestyle. And quite often you can find a much cheaper rate of return or, or well, cheaper rate of buying that real estate. And, and uh, the ripple effect is pretty big at the moment. Ripple effect, I think, is one of the biggest ways to find a bargain at the moment. You're simply uh, seeing people just having to go that one suburb further, but all of a sudden the value pops. And because a lot of people are looking for the top suburb, then realizing they can't afford it, they missed the boat, the growth has occurred, this ripple is an interesting set of data to watch. And, you know, I've seen suburbs which are literally next door to each other or local council areas next door to each other. And you can see hundreds of thousands of dollars of difference from precinct to precinct. And for me, I think it's, um, you know, just an amazing way of, um, of looking at real estate. And finally, the final thing I always look at is the square meter rate, which is just fundamentally... How much is that uh, dwelling worth to build or replace? Really the replacement value of real estate. And I do that so I can understand, particularly in the new section of the market, where I sit from secondhand properties. Am I buying at the same rate as secondhand? A little bit more, uh, way too much. And really the square meter rate allows me to uh, understand if I'm buying well or Fundamentally, you know, the data is revealing it's too expensive. Um, and so as you get more skilled with understanding it, it's a great way of understanding real estate. So, hey, for me, um, I'm, uh, I'm a big advocate of uh, making sure you understand some of this stuff. So thanks for tuning in today. Uh, if you feel like leaving a review, please do. Um, I would like a review. Uh, I feel like, um, yeah, sometimes reviews... I don't know, give me this kind of feedback that I'm doing the right thing here and I'm giving people quality information. So if you feel like leaving me a review, 
I would appreciate it because sometimes I think, wow, mate, do people actually, I don't know, enjoy the show? So if you're enjoying the show, do us a favor and leave a review and, and I'll keep doing them. All right, that's it. It's time for me to go. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.